And I want to welcome you back this evening. Thanks for being here. Probably the heaviest day of the entire series was yesterday. We're laying the foundation for a relational theology, which, by the way, is not less than a behavioral theology. It calls for a higher standard yet. We're not bypassing behavior. We're doing greater than. You might say the behavioral standard is too low because God calls us to the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. And that goes all the way to the inside, not just the outside. You know, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and their righteousness was behavior. So he said it's got to be more, right? It has to be more. And then he brings up murder and adultery, and he says it's not just not doing it, it's not even thinking of it. You know, the Tenth Commandment says don't even think about it. You can't keep the Tenth Commandment by trying to keep the Tenth Commandment. You can only keep the Tenth Commandment if God changes your heart. Right? So we're, we're, we're aiming for a higher standard. Yet. And yet, interestingly enough, the higher is attainable. <laughs> and the lower is not. You can work on behavior all you want to. And the, Satan, when he's ready, he can take you down. But if you work on relationship, the higher standard, Jesus can kick in and Satan gets kicked out. Okay, so yesterday, Friday night and yesterday, put the foundation layer in. Now what we want to do tonight, tomorrow night, and Tuesday night is what I call the nuts and bolts, and that is we're going to look at how to go about having a personal relationship with Jesus. It seems like it's so simple, we shouldn't have to talk about it, but in that 80% of us are not doing it consistently, I think we need to talk about it. So... Let's pray. Jesus, come and be with us tonight. We need to hear from you. We need to understand. We need a new experience. We need a deeper experience. We need a more consistent experience. So we pray for that tonight. We pray in your name. Amen. Yesterday I mentioned to you Morris Vinden's spiritual crisis. When he was about 30, he had bleeding ulcers. He'd been raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home by a Seventh-day Adventist evangelist father. His brother, uncle, and cousin were all pastors. He went to our schools from first grade through seminary. He heard all the messages. He knew all the doctrines and theology and proof texts. He was trying to appear, though, on the outside with something he didn't have on the inside. The little lady would go out after church and say, Pastor Venden, that was a fine sermon, but it will even be better when you know Jesus for yourself. And so we talked about the fact that he, he said she wasn't being mean. I didn't realize it showed. And so he decided to talk to his fellow pastors as a third party. What do you say when somebody asks you how to become and remain a Christian? And remember, we got all the pat answers. You know, give your heart to God, surrender your will to Jesus, lay your all on the altar, fall on the rock and be broken, behold the Lamb of God and use the eye of faith. How do you do any of that? It's all idiom, Right? So Morris Venden went home, wrote a letter of resignation, was about to send it in and had an impression we believe was from the Holy Spirit, read the book Steps to Christ, which he did, and he underlined everything she said to do to have a, a, a Christian life, and she said all the same phrases, give your heart to God, surrender your will, and lay your all on the altar, and so on. He was about to throw the book in the fire, and he got another impression to read it again. We think that one was also from the Holy Spirit. And this time, underline in red what it says you can do that you can actually understand and do. 
And he discovered when he'd finished reading it that there were three categories of things that he could do that are tangible and doable if you want to seek to have a Christian experience. And those are what Morris Venden turned into the three-legged stool. You know, a three-legged stool is level on any surface, right? A two-legged doesn't stand up on its own. A three-legged does. And he discovered three things. Number one, Bible. Reading the Bible for the purpose of getting to know God. Not to log your daily lesson study or read the Bible through in a year. Not to pass a test at school. Not to come up with doctrinal proof texts or prophetic scenarios. But reading your Bible for the purpose of getting better acquainted with Jesus. Number two, prayer. For the purpose of communion with God. Not 9-11 prayer. Lord, help me out of this trouble. Get me out of this mess. Help me find my keys. Pass the test. Don't let that officer give me a ticket. You know, beyond the prayer list of all the things we're advising God to do and how to do in running the universe, simply prayer for the purpose of communion with God. Conversation. And thirdly was sharing. But not sharing that's to convince others they're going to church on the wrong day and at the wrong church. But it's the sharing that is a bubbling over of a great relationship. You know good and well when you fall in love, you talk to others about it. When you find a really great new friend, you talk to others about it. You bubble over. It's a natural kind of sharing rather than a forced sharing. You can't help talking about a great person you've come to know. These are likened to eating, breathing, and exercising or moving with life. These are the three areas that Morris Venden came up with out of the book Steps to Christ. And here's what happened. Morris Venden talked about that click of conversion. For some it happens in a moment. Remember Morris' son, Lee? It was an explosion one evening when Jesus ambushed him. Went from you know black and white to color in a moment. No interest in Scripture to a voracious appetite for it. But that was not Morris Venden's experience. He said, once I learned that a personal relationship with Jesus was the thing that was waiting for me to experience and that there were three specific things that were the only means I could do to get that experience, he said, I decided to work on those three things because I desperately wanted something more meaningful. He said, before I started working on the three legs of the stool... The Bible was boring, boring, boring. Now, he's a preacher, right? And I have to admit, the preacher sometimes finds the Bible boring, boring, boring. He said, I read for days, and the Bible went from boring, boring, boring to just boring, boring. And I read for weeks, and it went from boring, boring to just boring. And I kept reading because I was desperate like Jacob at the Jabbok. I won't let go until you bless me. He said I had no alternative, nowhere else to turn. I decided I was going to cling, hang on until I had a breakthrough. He said I white-knuckled it like you're hanging on the side of a cliff by your fingertips. Hanging on to a roller coaster, hanging on for dear life. He said I kept at it, determined if there's one thing he chose to do legalistically, it was to seek Jesus through the Word of God. He said over time, the progress that came was not progress in behavioral modification. It was progress in the depth of relationship. And it went from boring to not so bad to pretty good 
to, I can't wait to spend more time with Jesus. But that process took months, even years. If we are determined, determined to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is a steady, slow, real process where we can push through to it if it doesn't come quickly and more naturally. Jesus promised Nicodemus in John 3 that if he would look at the uplifted Savior, the Holy Spirit would come and make the click happen. Now this is super important. I don't want you to miss this. Even if you have not experienced the kind of heart-burning warmth that you want to feel as you're seeking a breakthrough in a meaningful relationship with Jesus, if you are doing the only things humanly possible to grow in knowing Jesus, reading for relationship, talking for prayer and communication, and sharing and bubbling over, if you are doing those things even at an entry level, just hanging in there, I believe you have entered a relationship with Jesus that is genuine and real, as genuine and real as you're capable of at the moment, and if you're in a relationship with Jesus, even if you haven't felt the heart-burning click yet, John 5:11-13 says, "If you have Jesus, you have life." Like I suggested yesterday in an illustration, newlyweds are fully married the day they get married, and if they're married for 50 years, they'll never be any more married than the day they got married. The relationship will deepen and change and mature. They will be able to get along better and better as they communicate together, as they grow together. At least that's the way it's supposed to work, right? It gets better and better. And I believe it does. You know, 40 years later, your relationship hopefully is much deeper and better, but you're not any more married than the day you got married. And the moment you receive Christ, you have eternal life. You are not saved by the quality of your relationship. God says, okay, the relationship has to be, you know, reach a 70 percentile level and then you get saved. No. If you're in relationship, you're saved. If you have Jesus, you have life. And you can know it. So during the white knuckle stage, maybe where your Bible reading is boring, 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 or boring, boring, or just boring. And if it hasn't gotten exciting yet, You're still seeking relationship with Jesus, and I believe if you are seeking relationship with Jesus, he meets you there, and you have eternal life. So as we talk about how to increase the quality of your relationship with Jesus, how to deepen that click, how to draw closer to him, which is the lifelong goal of the Christian, we're not talking about getting more saved. We're talking about salvation taking deeper root in your life. But the whole time, you're inside the saving relationship. Amen? Okay, so we've got to be very clear that we're not talking about you somehow getting a good enough relationship to get saved. You know, that's what's wrong with the modern idea of marriage. You move in together, you test drive it, and you see if you can finally have a good enough relationship to get married. Now face it, guys love that because we always prefer all the goodies without commitment. And you women are being taken advantage of. But the false position on marriage, where you test drive it in hopes to have a good enough relationship to get married, shows or perpetrates a false idea of salvation. That you've got to work this thing long enough to finally be saved. No, you get saved and you live in it. You grow in salvation not into salvation Does that make sense all right so with that 
Let's move forward. Imagine trying to run a bakery without flour. Imagine trying to run a dairy without cows. Imagine trying to run a bank without money. That's kind of the American way, I guess. Imagine trying to skydive without a parachute. In each case, the most fundamental element is missing, right? What flour is to a bakery and cows are to a dairy and money is to a bank, I believe the devotional life is to the Christian. Quiet time, prime time, whatever you call it, you can't be a growing Christian without the component of a devotional life. Surveys of Christians, both Adventist and other Churches, schools, camp meetings, retreats. We discover that the average is about four out of five describe their spiritual life as faithfully and regularly attending church but having no daily time alone with Jesus. Now, I'm not going to do the survey here because I don't want to put you on the spot. But the reality is in about 80% across the board, the people we talk to, in about 80%, that core ingredient is missing. You're trying to run the dairy without cows. So that's the reason, even though it seems like a no-brainer, this is going to be obvious stuff for the next three nights, I think we need to take the time to talk about the three ingredients of a relationship with Jesus. So tonight we're going to talk about the first leg of the stool. Scripture for the purpose of knowing God. Tomorrow night we'll talk about prayer. Tuesday night we'll talk about sharing. Now when we talk about sharing, that's enough to scare us all to stay home. Don't worry, I won't be uh, making you out and knock on doors cold turkey. (laughs) Tonight let's start in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people with a sack lunch. Then he sent them home. If you read the story carefully, the disciples and Jesus had arrived at the spot where the feeding of the 5,000 took place in a boat, one boat. All the people had followed along on shore. So there was one boat, and at the close of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made the disciples go down and get in the boat and go away. And he dismissed the crowd, and he headed up in the mountain to pray. The next day, the people decided they wanted to find Jesus. So where do you think they went? Where they left him. But he wasn't there. So they went back to town, and there he was. Which is amazing, because how did he get from there to here at night without a boat? And so they are amazed. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea. Now that phrase means they weren't expecting to find him on the other side, they were expecting to find him on this side. But when they found him on that side, they said, when did you come here? which is not really to ask, what time did you get here? Eight, nine, or ten. They're asking, how did you do that? Now, they didn't know it, but that was the night that he walked on water, right? But when they found him on the other side, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Which being translated means what? You're not looking for me because you saw the miracles I performed and now believe that I am the Messiah and want to receive me as your Lord and Savior. You're looking for me because you want another meal. So he says, now don't work, labor, for food which perishes, 
but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. What was that seal? Jesus proved he was capable of giving more because of the way he performed miracles. He had the power to do it. That was the seal. Now Jesus says, you people are all totally focused on your next meal. And you think about it. The majority of people in the world, even today, are literally living meal to meal. And here you're talking to poor peasants who are literally living meal to meal. It took all they could do every day of scratching out a living to simply keep food on the table. And they probably weren't getting overweight, just enough to survive. So Jesus says, you're totally focused on your next meal, but you're made for so much more. I'm trying to give you something eternal, and all you want is something temporal. Don't just work on the temporal. I want you to work on the eternal, and by the way, I've already given it to you. It's there to be had. Now, it's interesting. He says, work on the food that will bring eternal life. Isn't that an internal contradiction? Work on the food. In fact, let me say it more like the text says it. Work on the food that will give eternal life that I will give you. How can you work on what he's going to give you? So, if I said, hey, I'm hungry. I know a good restaurant down the road. Let's call the meeting off and I'll take you all out to dinner. So, we head down the road. We take over the restaurant. And we order. And I pay for the meal. Is that a gift? Did you work for the meal? Did you have to work on the meal? You had to eat it. You had to work on the meal, but you did not work for the meal. Correct? Jesus gives the eternal life, the eternal food, but we have to eat it. Right? He doesn't cram it down our throat. So when he says, I want you to work on what I'll give you, he's not saying work for what I'll give you, but you need to eat the eternal food I'm trying to give you, not just eat the physical food. Okay? So Jesus here is offering them something more than just a feeding program. Believe it or not, I actually heard a uh, younger pastor, I think he's a man in his 40s now, preach on this passage that what we really should be doing is having feeding programs. And I wanted to jump up and yell, but I didn't in the middle of the sermon. That just wouldn't be the right thing to do. Because the one thing Jesus didn't institute was a feeding program. He refused to give them the second meal. He said, now I have something else for you, and I'm not going to placate you with daily food. I'm going to challenge you to receive eternity. He refused to set up a feeding program. And they weren't exactly happy about it. But he said, work not just for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Verse 28, they said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? We've been through this verse at least twice already, right? He said, work on eternal food. They heard the word works. Their whole system was built on works. So this rabbi, maybe he can give us the work to add to the list that will finally satisfy us. Of course, that never will happen. You'll never be satisfied if you are on a behavior mode. You'll always feel there's more you need to be doing. But they heard work and they asked a very good question. What shall we do to work the works of God? Okay, what does God really want us to work on? And Jesus answered, now this is the work of God, 
This is what God wants you to work on, that you trust, believe in him whom he has sent. God wants you to work on trusting me. Well, they weren't too excited about that. So they said to him, so what sign will you perform that we may see and believe you? Give us some reason to trust you. What? What did they have yesterday? He healed them and he fed them and he walked on water. But notice, they don't stop with the question. They give him the answer. This is often how we pray, isn't it? We not only give God the question, we give him the answer that we want him. Lord, please do this and do it that way. What work will you perform that we may see it and believe? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, and it's written he gave them bread from heaven. What are you going to do for us to have us believe, Jesus? Uh, food? Breakfast? Come on. Moses gave us manna. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. That wasn't from Moses. Who was that from? That was from God. But my father is giving. It's ongoing present tense in the Greek. My father is right now giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Ah, they said, Lord, give us this bread always. And he said, I'm it. I mean, can it be clearer? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Sounds just like the woman at the well. Not only water that will last forever, but food that will last forever. By the way, in the next few verses that I skipped, they actually try again <laughs> to hint about a meal. And Jesus comes back again and says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. So what does manna do for you? It'll keep you alive while you grow old and die. But this, speaking of himself now, is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat and not die. I'm trying to give you something better than the manna. You keep telling me to give you manna. I'm trying to give you something better than manna. I'm not going to give you manna. I'm going to give you something better. And if you don't want it, that's all I'm offering. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They're dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh that I will give for the life of the world. And do you know what their response was? At the end of chapter 6, Jesus says this, by the way, for another seven verses. He says it over and over and over and over again. And at the end it says they all left. And this was the big turning point in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point they were thronging. When he finally said, now we're going to move to a higher level and talk about eternal things, they left. And what does Jesus do? He turns to the disciples and said, are you going to? And Peter said, if we had somewhere else to go, we'd go. Where else would we go? You know, you're, you're it. You know, we had other options. We might consider them, but you seem to be the only one. Like we're going to stick with you. You know, you're the last man on earth. We'll stick with you. That kind of seems to be what he says. Must have been terribly encouraging. Jesus likens himself to the true bread and he says if we'll eat him, we're in. We have eternal life, we'll live forever, we'll come up in the right resurrection and we'll be abiding. 
I'll share those verses with you on a future time. So tonight, we want to look at the recipe for bread. The recipe for spiritual bread. And I'm going to suggest, and again, I'm borrowing this directly from Morris Venden, time alone at the beginning of every day in contemplation of the life of Christ through his word and through prayer. That is the recipe. Now, there are two types of cooks in our world. There is the legalist cook who gets out the recipe, and it says one cup of flour. So what does the legalist cook do? Dips in the flour with one cup, takes a knife, slices it off. We have exactly one cup, puts it in. A teaspoon of salt, exactly, you know. A tablespoon of this, exactly. And you put it all in just perfect, and you do exactly what you're told to do. And when it's all said and done, it probably tastes pretty good. And then you have the relational cook, like my wife. Oh, well, let's see. Okay, we need a cup of that. Okay, and then we need a half of that. I think a little of that would be good, and a little more of this. And when she gets done, it's really good. And if you ask her for the recipe, she'll say, I'm not quite sure what I did. Right? Oh, so many people have asked her for recipes. She said, well, I, I, don't, really know. I don't really know what I did for sure. The point I want to make with that is simply, I'm going to share with you a recipe for spending time in the Word of God with Jesus. We're all going to apply that recipe a little different. Don't think you're going to get the right relationship with Jesus because you take exactly the right steps in the right portions, as somebody else said. But, there are certain components that have to be there. And how you mix them up may be a little different. But certain components are necessary. So that's what we're going to talk about. I'd like to suggest that when you sit down to spend time with Jesus in the Word, that you uh, start with a preliminary prayer. And maybe put three ingredients into that. Number one, ask Jesus to give you an increased heart experience, a deeper click. You're here for the purpose of relationship. You're not here for the purpose of figuring out Bible prophecy and last day events and doctrines. You're here for the purpose of deeper relationship. Those other kinds of Bible studies do have a time and a place, absolutely. But this is about becoming better friends. So ask him to put you in the mode of relationship. Number two, I suggest you ask him to rebuke Satan's power to distract. Because you know the minute you sit down, Satan will let the rabbits out. And if you're not careful, you'll be chasing rabbits for the next hour, and then your time is up. You will think about all the things that need to be done. You need to mow the lawn and rotate the tires and organize the pantry and sew on a button, and there will be all kinds of stuff. And I sat down about a week ago, a few days before we headed here, I sat down to uh, have some time with Jesus, and the, the task list started coming. So I got up my phone, put it in the... Uh, the uh, note mode, and I every time something came to mind, I wrote it down quick so I wouldn't think about it anymore. Before I ended up my time with Jesus, I had about 14 things on that list. You know, the rabbits start going out. Satan wants to distract. Ask God to uh, prevent Satan from distracting. And thirdly, ask for Holy Spirit eyesight. 
that God will bring out of this passage what you need for today. You might often, you might even say the Bible is encrypted. You cannot learn what God has for you in the Word of God by intellect alone. You have to have the Spirit to illuminate and enlighten. And in fact, believe it or not, you could read the same three verses every day for the rest of your life, and the Holy Spirit could give you something new out of each, each day. Isn't that right? So you're looking for a, a, a dynamic experience where the Holy Spirit shows up and makes something happen today. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, it's going to be a flat tire. Right? But you're counting on it. And I believe if you say, God, will you meet me here? Jesus, will you meet me here? Holy Spirit, will you meet me here? I believe he absolutely will. With that in mind, let's go through this list briefly. I'm not going to do it in order. We're going to jump around, but I'll highlight each one. Let's start with through his word. I believe that it's absolutely necessary, if you're going to spend time to get to know Jesus, I believe it's necessary that you read inspired material about Jesus. And I'm going to suggest that you start with the Gospels, because that's where the gold nuggets are on the surface. You can find Jesus in Deuteronomy and Ezra and Job and Jeremiah and Habakkuk, but the gold you have to dig a little more for, right? If you want the stuff on the surface, you read the Gospels. It's about Jesus. You will be watching, observing, and spending time with Jesus. Secondly, I'd suggest you use a readable translation. Please, folks, you do not have to know how to speak Elizabethan English in order to meet Jesus. Now, you may find the King James floats your boat. That's great. You may find it doesn't. I stumble over it. I will tell you there are better translations for study. Some are much better. I prefer a very literal translation like New American Standard or English Standard Version if I'm going to be studying. In fact, if I'm going to be studying, I'm going to go to the Greek because everything is a translation. And if anybody here is bilingual, they know that every translation is an interpretation. There's no such thing as exact translation. That's the reason I believe personally that anything called the Bible, if you open it and ask Jesus to meet you there, he'll meet you there. Okay? Now pick the best translation you can, but don't get stuck on strange language in order to know Jesus. Remember, Elizabethan English was the street language of the day. It's not a holy dialect. Things have changed, and somehow we think that was holy. That was common then. Thee and thou has nothing to do with holiness. We'll talk about that a little more when we talk about prayer tomorrow night. I urge you to pick a readable translation. Now, if you're one who is persuaded that one translation is better than the other, by all means, use that one, please. And I have my favorites. I generally don't use a broad paraphrase because that has more interpretation. And yet, you know what? If you're reading a passage and you decide to read it in a literal and you decide to read it in a moderate like New International and then you decide to go to the message, you're just hanging out in the Word of God letting it circulate through your mind, getting different thoughts and ideas. Use a readable translation. Number three, I suggest there are some great inspired companion books. We as Seventh-day Adventists believe that Ellen White had a special gift, and I believe that her books on the life of Christ are priceless. 
Desire of Ages, Ministry of Healing, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, Christ's Object Lessons, and many have not heard of the little book, Confrontation. Anybody not heard of that book? Okay, there are several of you here. It's about the size of Steps to Christ. It's a small book, size of Mount, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, and it is strictly on the temptations of Christ in the wilderness. It is a powerful little book, and it's one of those that I put in this list of what I would call some great companion reading whether you believe they're specially inspired or just really good books about the life of Christ, they're great companion reading. I don't think you can lose from that. And of course you have to remember the purpose of this reading is to become better acquainted with Jesus. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, speaking to the Pharisees, for in them you think you have eternal life. You guys think that by knowing this you have eternal life. However, these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may find life. The whole purpose of the book is to lead you to the person. Now, I don't know how many of you remember the name HMS Richards Sr., but he was truly an old saint in our denomination. I had the privilege of interning right where he had retired in his last few years, and I had the privilege of spending a little bit of time around him, and he was an inspiring person. A truly a man of God. But when he was a much younger man and had preschool-aged children, he would come home from a day at the office exhausted. And, of course, the minute you walk in the door, what do the kids do? Daddy, Daddy, you're home. Can we play hide-and-seek? Can we play, you know, uh, horsey? And we want to ride? And, you know, can we? Can we? And he just wanted to sit down and rest for a few minutes. And so one day coming home from the office, he said he saw in, the, in a store window puzzles half price so we went in the store and he bought a half price puzzle and for his preschool age children he chose to pick out a puzzle that was a geographical map of the world he figured that'll keep him busy for a while <laughs> so he took the puzzle home he comes in the door daddy daddy can we play i have a gift for you oh what is it well i bought you a puzzle can we do it now yes Let's go in on the kitchen floor where it's the hard floor surface. So he pours out the puzzle pieces. And he says, now, when you get it done, come and get me. We'll play. And he went in and he figured he'd have a little time for a nap. And he just barely settled in. And they came in, Daddy, Daddy, we have it all done. Please tell me it's not so, he says, you know. So he goes in the kitchen. Sure enough, they had it all done. He said, how in the world did you do that? They said, well... We discovered when we turned the pieces over, it was the face of a man. So we just put the ears where the ears were supposed to go and the nose where the nose and the mouth and everything. We flipped it over and we had a map of the world. And HMS Richard Sr. used that as an illustration that if you find the man, the world will come together. Isn't that right? And the whole idea here is that if you miss the man, you've missed everything. Does that make sense? If you find the man you've found everything. So if you find the man and you find him in Habakkuk, that's great. But the easiest place to find him is in the Gospels. All right? I know people like Marilyn's dad who, once they discovered this message, spent the rest of their lives reading the Gospels and Desire of Ages over and over and over again just for the purpose of knowing Jesus. So you need inspired information, inspired writings on Jesus all right 
Number two, time at the beginning, at the beginning. I know this is a text out of context, but in the beginning, God. That's a good place to start every morning. In the beginning, start with God. There's a verse that says, I love them that love me, and those who seek me early will find me. Now, if you go to more modern translations, you'll find that that word is not early anymore. You'll find that it is translated earnestly or diligently. But I discovered that the word in the Hebrew is shakar, which means the black of the early dawn. So it is early. Exactly. It refers to the early bird gets the worm. In the black of the early dawn. Start with God. Start with God. Now, Jesus said, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. God did, right? The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus compared himself to the manna. And I believe by looking at the manna, we can learn a lot about spending time with Jesus. Exodus 16, 21. They gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. If you waited till 10 o'clock to go pick up your manna, there wasn't any manna to pick up. And the point I think here is that there's something about the early morning. Now, I am not an early morning person. I figure if God wanted me to see the sunrise, he'd have made it come up later. But there is something about getting up and giving God the first moments of your day and making those moments before anybody else is even interested in having you. I realize when you're parents with small children, that's almost an impossibility because the minute you get up, Satan will wake up the babies. He'll pinch them and they'll want your attention. You may have to pray through that and ask God to please keep the babies asleep. But the idea here is that the manna melts. The rabbits get out of the hole. The distractions come. You can spend time with Jesus in your lunch break, but there will be a lot of distractions that have already invaded your day. One of the biggest ones that gets me is I think, oh, I'll just check my email first. My time is gone. My mind is distracted. You have to get at it early in the day. Now, if you work nights and you sleep days, still, when you wake up and get up, that's your morning. That's your early. Make that your first part of your day. Make it the first part of your day. Some have discovered that they can even count on God to wake them up. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. You know, I think if the last thing you do before you go to bed is say, Lord, you wake me up in the morning when you want to talk, he'll do it. I suggest you set your alarm clock to give you a period of time to spend with Jesus and then watch him wake you up just before the alarm clock almost every morning. And sometimes, get ready, he'll wake you at an ungodly hour. And if you decide it's too early and you roll over and go to sleep, he'll stop waking you up. Isn't that right? Remember, if he wakes you up early, he's as capable of doing with your tiredness what he does with your money when you tithe. Right? You tithe, 90% goes further than 100. Have you discovered that? If you're not tithing, you're missing a huge blessing. And if he wakes you up after six hours of sleep, he can make that six hours give you more energy through the day than eight hours without time with him. Now, don't fool with God. Stay up till 1 a.m. watching the Late Late Show and then think he's going to give you eight hours of sleep in three and wake you up. 
But I believe we need to plan our entire day around our time with Jesus in the morning. So I'm trying to get to bed early enough so I can get up, have a quality piece of time with Jesus in the morning before anything else. And then say, Lord, if you want to meet me even earlier, feel free and see what he does. And he will keep you rested. He gives power to the weak, to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths will faint and be weary. The young men will utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Power to the weak who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Jesus is a great example in this. If he needed time alone with Jesus early in the morning, my sakes, we must need it, right? All right. So, through his word, at the beginning, let's go to time alone. How much time? That is a guy question. And that's the wrong question. How much time? 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes? You know, if a couple's having marriage trouble and the counselor says, you know, the problem is you're not spending time together. And that's often what happens, right? Between the kids and the job and everything else, you used to spend time together, but you don't have time for each other anymore, and you wonder why the marriage is falling apart. So the counselor is going to tell you, you need to spend time together. And what is the man most likely to ask? How much time? Wrong question. But suppose the counselor finally says, okay, 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 at least 30 minutes. All right, so the next day, after dinner, the man says, okay, the clock is ticking, we have 30 minutes, you go first. (laughs) That's not going to work, right? The wrong question is to ask how much time, but the reality is it has to be a significant amount of time, not a text for the day with your hand on the doorknob. I discovered something online, something called the Minute a Day Bible. I wonder if that author also wrote the Minute a Day Marriage. It's not going to work. It's going to take some time. This is to nurture a relationship, not to get her done. Martin Luther was known to say when he had an extra busy day, he needed at least four hours alone with God. When I have an extra busy day, I take four minutes instead of a half an hour. George Mueller was known to read his Bible through on his knees early in the morning. HMS Richard Sr. was visiting with Morris Venden one time when Morris was a young pastor and HMS was his hero, as Morris is my hero spiritually. HMS is someone he looked up to and he went to HMS to talk about how to have a relationship with Jesus because he was seeking And Richard said, you know, I think the big problem of our pastors is they're not even spending three hours alone with Jesus every day. (laughs) And Morris is going, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. It's like he's having trouble spending three minutes or 30 minutes. Three hours. I haven't reached that great point yet. Concerning the manna, Exodus 16, 16, let every man gather it according to his need. Nobody can gather for you. Nobody can eat for you. Nobody can drink for you. Nobody can exercise for you. You have to decide what you need. It's not a set amount of time, but you need a significant piece of time if you're going to have a significant relationship. Does that make sense? 
Many years ago in the mid-1970s, do any of you remember the Mike Douglas show on television? It's probably the first talk show. And one day he had Arnold Schwarzenegger on who had just become Mr. Universe. In fact, Arnold Schwarzenegger had biceps so large that if he went to scratch his head, he'd hit himself in the side of the head. And he was on Mike Douglas' show in a suit and tie and long sleeve white shirt. And they were talking about exercise and how to be fit. And so at one point, um, Schwarzenegger decided to uh, give an example. So he, he said, now what you need to do is get a set of dumbbells that are about the right weight for you. Not too heavy, just something that you can do. And he picked up a set of dumbbells while he was talking, took off his jacket, picked up a set of dumbbells, and he's just going like this with them. And he said, you know, just get a weight that works for you so that you can do a lot of reps. And he's just going like this, and Mike Douglas says, okay, great, how heavy are the weights that you are doing right now? And he said, I'm not going to tell you because it's not about the amount of weight, it's that you need to do what works for you. And they kept at it. How heavy are they? And finally Schwarzenegger gave in, and he said, well, these are 100 pounds apiece. And he was just going like this, not even working up a sweat. So I have some of those. I went in the, in the exercise room, the extra spare room we have, and I found the 25-pounders, and I could barely do three or four or five, right? So I set those down. I got out the 15-pounders, and I was able to do a few more before I couldn't do any more. I discovered the two-pounders. They are absolutely perfect <laughs> for me, right? The point being, don't ask how much time the spend the time with Jesus that works for you. And I think you'll find if you decide I'm going to give him at least 15 minutes, you know, give him a quality piece of time. Over time, you'll stretch it to 20 and 25, and some days you'll get to take an hour. Now, here's the cool thing. Verse 17 of Exodus 16. When the children of Israel did so, no, let each man gather according to his needs. So when the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less, so when they measured it by omers, he who had gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now this manna was amazing stuff, because you see, if some man went out there with a pickup truck and a shop vac, and he filled bags of this stuff and took it home, and some little grandma with five orphan kids, babies, went out and managed to pick up a little bowlful, what does this tell us? When she got home, it had swelled up to the, what the whole family needed. And when the guy with the shop vac and the bags full got home, it had shrunk to what every man needed. What's the message? If you simply go out to pick up the manna, you'll get what you need. It's not about a set amount of time, but it is a matter of going out and seeking to pick up the morning manna of spending time with Jesus. And if you go, he will give you what you need. Now, I will warn you, some mornings it will taste great. And some mornings it will taste like cardboard. Anybody discover that? Sometimes you read the Bible and the heavens open. Sometimes you read the Bible and your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And when you were a kid and your mother fixed your breakfast, sometimes you liked what she fed you. And sometimes you didn't like what she fed you. And I know at least when I was growing up, I did not have the choice to say I want something else. I got whatever she fed me. And whether I liked it or not, did I receive the nutrients I needed for the day? 
Yes, I had to trust that she knew what I needed. And if you spend time with Jesus, if it tastes great, wonderful. If it tastes lousy, wonderful. Give the time to Jesus. Go out to pick up the manna. And whether you like the menu or not, Jesus will make sure you got what you needed. All right? It's all there in the promise of the manna. So, time alone at the beginning through his word. Let's move on. Time alone at the beginning of every day. Let's go back to the manna. Moses said, let no one leave any of it until morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Now, I would have been one of those, my wife can vouch to it, who would have tried to save the leftovers. It actually viscerally hurts for me to see good food thrown out. I'm not quite sure why. My dad was raised in the Depression, and I say I was raised in the Depression because he never left the Depression. We were in a Starbucks in Palmer, Alaska after the closing night of, uh, of the series up there in March. A couple other couples and Marilyn and I went out and we had some, something to eat and then we went to a Starbucks and got something decaffeinated. And we sat there. We closed down the Starbucks. We were there until they were... And when we walked in, Marilyn paid, you know, five bucks or something for this little tasty piece of pastry. And as we're sitting there, and closing time came, I'm sitting there and I see one of the workers walk over to that same cabinet that we had just paid five bucks for something and pull everything out of it and throw it in the trash. And I'm just hurting, right? Now, I don't need to eat all that stuff, but I can't stand to have it thrown away for some reason. Marilyn says I need counseling on this. I have a food fetish. I would have been one who kept the extra overnight. But what's the point here? The point is, today's manna is not good for tomorrow. You have to come every day for a fresh meal with Jesus. He says, give us this day our, what? Daily bread. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus says you have to live your life with me day by day. So, I believe we have to look at time at the beginning of every day. Listen, if you miss a day, you're not dead. Isn't that right? If you miss a day spending time together as husband and wife, you haven't lost your marriage. But if you miss too many days, what's going to happen? You know, my dad told this stupid joke when I was a kid. He only knew two jokes. So we'd be working on some project, and he'd say, uh, Gary, have you heard the joke about the man who taught his horse not to eat? And of course, I'd heard it dozens of times. And I'd say, no, no, Dad, I haven't heard that one. Tell me. And he'd say, well, you know, the man just got that horse trained in it up and died. You know, it's a stupid joke, but if you train a horse not to eat, it's going to up and die. Now, if you miss a meal, you're not dead, but if you miss too many meals, will you die? Yes. How often do you need to eat? Daily. It all fits in with your relationship with Jesus. Time alone at the beginning of every day. If you miss a day, you're not dead. If you miss a day, you don't necessarily need to repent in sackcloth and ashes. 
If you miss a day, you haven't necessarily sinned and lost your salvation. But you need a daily meal with Jesus. It needs to be daily. So if you miss a day, get back at it. You may not feel hungry, but you are. You need it. Time alone at the beginning of every day. And then finally, in contemplation of the life of Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We talked about it. It's about lifting up Jesus, and if we look, we will live. Just before the crucifixion, Jesus said, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. We need to look so he can draw us into himself. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. It's coming to Jesus. It's focusing on Jesus. It's contemplation on who Jesus is that matters. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Read the Gospels over and over. Every time the Holy Spirit will bring something new. Read the companion books over and over, and every time the Holy Spirit will bring something new. When you read what somebody else wrote about the life of Jesus, you're simply walking in the footprints of those who went before, and that's not a bad thing to do. Desire of Ages, page 390, we should carefully study the Bible, asking God for the aid of the Holy Spirit that we may understand His Word. We should take one verse and concentrate the mind on the task of discovering the thought which God has in that verse for us. We should dwell upon it, upon the thought, until it becomes our own. One verse, a few verses, I think she's suggesting a small piece. A small bite. You're not here to read three chapters in the morning. If you want to read your Bible through in a year, great. But don't make that your morning devotions. Take a few verses. Take a story, a piece, and meditate on it. And by the way, please, people, I'll say this several times. Please do not get wigged out by the words meditation or contemplation. There is proper meditation and contemplation, and there is improper meditation and contemplation. And Ellen White and Scripture use the words meditation and contemplation all over the place. They're not bad in and of themselves. You know the bad meditation is where you concentrate more and more on less and less until you are totally concentrated on nothing. And when there's an empty spot, Satan will come in. We're talking about focusing on Jesus and meditating and contemplating and cogitating and ruminating on him. Please don't be afraid. There's some folks out there on the internet that want to scare you half to death of meditation. Do not let them destroy the good thing God has given. By looking constantly to Jesus with the eye of faith, we will be strengthened. God will make the most precious revelations to his hungering and thirsting people. They will find that Christ is a personal Savior. As they feed upon his word, they find that it is spirit and life. This is eating the bread that comes down from heaven. And then the one that you all have heard, it would be well to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination, there's nothing wrong with the imagination. We need to teach the imagination to dwell on spiritual things, not trivial things. Let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be the more constant, our love will be quickened, and we will be more deeply imbued 
with his spirit. If we ask for the Holy Spirit's aid and we spend time thoughtfully with Jesus, a thoughtful hour, that does not mean a thoughtful 60 minutes, but it doesn't mean a thoughtful minute. A thoughtful, considerable chunk of time. You know, you begin to fall in love with someone and you ask them out for a date and you say, let's go on a 10-minute date. That just wouldn't really work, would it? You know, three times a week we're going to have a 10-minute date. It's not going to work. You need to spend some time together that's unhurried. If you decide you're going to read your Bible through every year, how many of us have become experts on Genesis? It's not about getting through the Bible. It's about meeting Jesus. If you find the man, you get everything. Here's a practical suggestion. Well, before we get to that, the final point, and through prayer. Time alone at the beginning of every day in contemplation of the life of Christ through his word and through prayer. We will deal with prayer tomorrow night. Okay? So here's a practical suggestion, a little acronym called SOAP. Spend some time in Scripture, read, maybe read the passage twice, three, four times, read it in different versions. If you know the Greek, read it in the Greek. That's what I do. Uh, read it slowly, then observe it. Or dare I say, meditate, contemplate on it. Close your eyes, play it through in your mind. Read it through again, phrase by phrase, thinking it through. What do you see happening where are you in the picture? Put yourself in there. Are you the bystander? Are you a disciple? Are you the sick person coming to be healed? Imagine the scene, the background, the scenery, the story. If you want to keep yourself focused and not have your mind flitting off in other directions, journal your thoughts. You know, journaling slows your mind down to the speed of a conversation. It does. You know, when you're talking to somebody else, your mind isn't flitting off somewhere. You're, you're focusing on the words and the conversation. If you journal, it'll slow your mind down to the speed of a conversation, even a slow conversation. I have discovered that I'm lazy, number one. I don't want to move the pen over the paper. I just want to meditate. And the next thing they know, I'm either asleep or on some other subject. But I've discovered if I will begin to write, things will end up on that paper I hadn't thought of before. And if I've asked God to come into this, I believe that's God that's putting those thoughts in my mind that wouldn't have come otherwise. And I've discovered that he does. If I will actually take the discipline to begin to write, even write out my prayer, write out my thoughts. God, what do you have to say to me today? Maybe the first sentence. And then his thoughts come, I just keep writing. And I discover God says something. But I admit so often I'm too lazy to journal, but it is such an excellent way to focus in observe journal meditation is not a dirty word but at some point then you need to say okay god now would you open my eyes to what this passage has to tell me for life right now beyond a history lesson beyond fundamental beliefs and proof text down at the heart level what do you have for me what do you have to say to me out of this verse today and maybe that's a good time to start journaling after you ask that question God's word supernaturally can adapt itself to each day's need. Two people can read the same passage at the same time and come up with something totally different. And what you get may not be what you get from an exegetical study. What you get may be something totally different, but the Spirit will take that and use it and put it in your mind. Amen. And then, 
Be sure you leave a little time to pray. Talk to God about what you just learned. Maybe read back some of the points of your journal. Lord, what do you mean by that? How can this be a fact? Would you bring this to pass? Thank him for the fresh picture. Go through your day a little bit. Lord, I'm going to be doing this, this, that, and the other thing today. Feel free to interrupt me with your agenda. Please walk me through this. Let me, uh, let me represent you well. Listen for the Holy Spirit's whispers. More on prayer tomorrow evening. All right? Like I said, this is just nuts and bolts stuff. Now, I want to do something very quickly here. We won't take very long for this. But you know, when you sit down in the morning for your devotional time with Jesus, you don't have necessarily a pre-planned study. In fact, I often suggest you don't use a study guide. Open the Word of God, the naked Word of God. Read a passage and ask the Holy Spirit to come and meet you and bring something out of it. And trust that He will. So what I want to do this evening is I always ask my wife to come up with a passage And we're going to do a quick little group morning devotion test run here. Marilyn, did you come up with a passage for me? 1 through 13. Ellen White said only one verse. No. (laughs) All right, so just suppose that we are going to sit down this morning And we're going to read the first few verses of John 21. That's kind of the next section we're coming to. How are we going to go through our time with Jesus? What are we going to do first? We're going to have a prayer, so let's pray. Jesus, we're going to do a little test run together here to encourage one another of how you can come through in the moment from a passage of Scripture. We ask for three things, Lord. We ask, number one, that you will keep our focus relational. Number two, we ask you to cut out Satan's distractions. And number three, we ask for your Holy Spirit to enlighten us with a message for us, each of us personally. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read this passage. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who would that be? James and John. And two other disciples. I'll bet it was, well, we know Peter was one of them, right? Or was he the first? No, he's already up there. Okay, probably James, right? He's a fisherman and somebody else. And two others were together. And Simon Peter, professional fisherman, said, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going to go with you too. So they went out immediately, got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. And when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, who's the disciple whom Jesus loved? John. So we know John was there, sons of Zebedee. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. That was kind of like a no-brainer, right? It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, (laughs) he's a little slow to catch on, isn't he? When he heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. That's a lousy way to go swimming. You put on your coat to go swimming? But anyway. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. 
As soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid out on the, and bread, fish and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've just caught. Simon Peter went and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. All right, so we read that. We could read it again, but we won't. Let's take a moment and just think through the story. You have the disciples. They don't have anything to do. They're not sure about their purpose in life anymore, right? They're not sure what to do. Jesus is dead, raised, gone, shows up. So Peter says, well, let's at least go fishing. And they toil all night and catch nothing. Then someone speaks through the mist in the morning, did you catch anything? And they say no. He says, put it on the right side. They get 153 fish. Peter swims to shore, drags the net in, and Jesus feeds his disciples fish and bread for breakfast. He took bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. Where does that take your mind? He took bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. Oh, there's a lot of memories here, aren't there? For the disciples, that's the feeding of the 5,000. He took the bread and the fish, and he fed them. Now, we can simply look at this story and see what kind of jumps out. Did anything, did anything jump out of this story for you? Going back to the old won't work. Once you put your hand to the plow, you, you can't go back to the old. You know, I've, I've known a number, I've, I've known several Adventist pastors, young men, whose wives decided they didn't want to be pastor's wives. And I've seen a couple of them drop out of the ministry to try to save their marriage, and it's never worked. You can't go back when you get the call. You've got to keep going forward no matter the cost. The call of Jesus has to come first. Yeah. Anybody else? Did something jump out at you? Yes, sir. So if we're going to try to go catch fish for Jesus, we better do it as he instructs us, not think we can go out and do it, even if we toil all night. Good. Yes, sir. You know, he had to get near Jesus, which is interesting because I'm not sure he was sure yet that he was back in. However, we do know that he told the women, go tell the disciples and Peter, I'll meet you in Galilee. So Peter had some hope, but you're right. He wanted to be near Jesus. It is interesting, though, you know, he stripped down to his loincloth, probably, his bathing suit, so to speak, his underwear, and uh, he doesn't want to show up naked in front of Jesus, right? He's got to pull on that robe. Terrible way to swim. Just go as you are. You can't hide anything from him. Yes. Okay, one more item, sir. Henry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God, the one thing I remember from that book is don't try to figure out what you can do for Jesus. Go see where Jesus is in action and join him. Okay? I like that. Go find out what Jesus is doing and join him in that. And he's already cooking fish and bread. Go join him. So that's the perfect segue to A, application. Take a moment. What is God saying to you 
out of this passage. And we all filled out the story. You gave us, you gave little pieces of the story, things to see. Like for the first time I saw the feeding of the 5,000. I'd never had that come to mind when I saw him giving them bread and fish. Yeah. So, but what, where's an application? So let's take just a moment, just a moment. Lord, what do you have to apply out of this passage for me right now? Now, God may say something to you that you not, don't need to tell anybody else. And if he does, please don't say it out loud. But if any of you have an application that you feel God is bringing to your mind that is appropriate to say in public, I'd like to hear it. Anybody? Good. Today, as I go out into my day, I'm not fishing on my own. Lord, show me which side to cast the net on. Yeah. Anyone else over here? Yes, ma'am. So, Jesus, thank you for loving, impetuous me. Yeah. Help me get to shore if I dive in too soon. Clear in the back. So something I get from this is the fact that, Jesus, would you feed me now and then help me to be willing to cast my net wherever you want me to cast it, even if it looks foolish today. It was foolish to cast the net again it was light the fish could see they're going to swim away it makes no sense but lord if you tell me to cast give me the guts to do it today even if i'm going to look like a fool to other people help me to hear your voice and and follow today all right and then we can pray jesus you have spoken to us out of this passage how you accept us in our impetuousness and our lack of thinking ahead how we can't go back it's forward with you how you let us participate in what you've already started how you feed us and then thinking ahead in the story then you commission us you fill us and then you send us to feed your lambs and sheep Lord, thank you for accepting us who are like Peter and still loving those of us who are like John. And Lord, I pray that as we face tomorrow morning and the next morning, that we will plan as we go to sleep to get to bed so we can get up. Wake us up before the alarm, Lord, and meet us. Keep us awake. Give us a vibrancy. Help us to have a dynamic experience with you each day. And even if we don't feel it, to believe that you have given us what we need. Because you promised that. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.